0: This week on Dig Me Out.
1: With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi.
0: Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at DMOUnion.com or DigMeOutUnion.com. Jay, we are breaking our charter today on this episode.
1: A little bit. A little, a little bit. bit.
0: A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Um, but we didn't do it on purpose. We were forced to.
1: <laughs>
0: we were We were paid off. Is what we're saying. I mean,
1: you know? We're 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 here to tell the story that that people want to tell. So it's not right. our story; it's our story. It's you it's, know, it's everybody's story.
0: It's our in the universal sense. Yes. No. This is actually. I I will say, if you're going to go with this band, this is the album to go with. I think, and we'll get into why. But the gentleman who selected this album, he's been here before, a couple times this year. Joined us for Modest Mouse. Joined us for the Producers Roundtable. Basically like once a month now. He's (laughs) he's, he's joining us. It's back again, Mr. Johnny Hooper. Welcome back, Johnny.
2: Pleasure to be here, boys.
0: Please tell everyone what mission statement shattering album you have selected. (laughs) And...
2: Why you picked it? It's third and final record in utero, and it's one of the finest rock records of the 1990s. Boom! There it is. I guess we got to talk about it. We do.
0: We do indeed. Now, this record, Jay. Hmm. Did you buy it when it came out?
1: I actually did. Wow. Yeah, really? I own this on CD. I got sucked into the hype. I mean, it was a big deal when this came out. Oh, yeah. This was like, you know, use your illusions level, big deal. So, yeah, I got sucked in.
0: I like that that's your me- your metric. It's use your illusions <laughs> level, big deal. Well,
1: shit, yeah, that, I mean, that is that the... like kid, kids skip school to buy that record, man. <laughs> or to those records.
0: Okay. Okay. I, okay, I got it. Um, I did not... My, I didn't, so when Nirvana broke, I didn't buy the album right away. I don't think I bought that album new. I bought it probably used somewhere, Never mind, I'm speaking of. And then when In Utero came out, I was working at the radio station. So I probably had a bootleg copy that I I made from the radio station for a while. And then I picked it up used at some point. So I was really mostly buying used CDs in the 90s. I wasn't buying stuff new. It was rare that I would buy stuff right when it came out. I could probably count on one hand how many times I did that because I just was not, I didn't have that kind of money. I didn't have that kind of cash flow in the 90s. It was going towards uh, beverages at, at local watering holes around Bowling Green. Um, so, I, But I did get this eventually. And then I actually went backwards after this, I think, and got like bleach and incesticide And I didn't get those until much later. So Johnny, what was this an album that you bought day of when it came out in September of
2: 1993?
0: 100%. Was there a midnight sale? Did you go to a midnight sale for it?
2: No, I didn't go to a midnight, but I was already recording um, off the radio station. Um, they had previewed a few tracks, uh, Heart Shaped Box, obviously chief amongst them. Uh, but Francis Farmer Will Have a Revenge on Seattle was also one that I was able to uh, get hold of. And so I was already kind of primed before the record had even dropped at that point. So I was I was all ready to go.
0: Yeah. And we got to remember that, you know, this is the era of MTV, Heartshaped box was released as a single almost a full month before the uh, album came out. It came out the single came out in August of 93, August 30th. Mm-hmm. So, we had a month of Heartshaped box being played on MTV, getting played on radio, probably even more. It might have been a single in terms of you could buy it a CD single, but I'm sure that the radio was playing it before that if they could. And then, so what's interesting is as far as the singles go, All Apologies and Rape Me were a double single that were released in December of '93. I didn't realize that All Apologies was technically the second single off of this record. I thought that Rape Me was the second single. Um, and then Penny Royalty was scheduled to be the third single released, but. Uh, that was interrupted by the death of Kirk Cobain. So it was I think it was pushed back and then they it was kind of put out there quietly as a third single. But um, I did not remember all apologies as a single for this. I remember it being the one of the videos that got played from the unplugged album a lot as far as the when they would play videos from that performance and yeah the man, and i get the, my the
1: timeline the i get my timeline messed up with the with the um, unplugged album in this album
0: right i do too because i thought i thought unplugged came out between the records but it actually comes out after but they recorded the unplugged in december of 93
2: yeah and, november actually
0: or oh yeah november and then it aired in December.
2: Uh, you know what? It took a long time for it to air in Canada. It didn't air in Canada till the following spring.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it, it was recorded on November 18th. It was uh, on, I guess, US MTV, December 16th, 93. And then the album was released a year later, November 1st, uh, 94. That was the Unplugged album. And then... Um, so in there, we've got the, this album coming out in, like I mentioned, September of 93. So just so we know uh, some of the, you know, what's been going on with this record, there's been multiple re-releases. Um, there was most recently a 20th anniversary re-release uh, with a deluxe two-disc edition well, there's a three-disc edition, which has a DVD. But then there's a two-disc edition, uh, which has demos. It has B-sides. It has, like, instrumental versions of the songs. And if you read through the history of making this record, when they, would, when they were on tour, they would, you know, during Soundtrack, they would record instrumental versions of what they were working on. And they got together with Jack and Dino in Seattle and recorded a bunch of demos before going into the studio with um, Steve Albini. And then there was, so there's yeah, there's three different 20th anniversary editions that you can get, um, different bonus tracks and and whatnot. The B sides are included that were from this record as well. And then the so the personnel involved in this record, obviously Kurt Cobain, Kirst Novoselic. And Dave Grohl. Steve Albini was the producer, eng- well, he doesn't take the name producer, but engineered and mixed the record. And then some of the tracks were remixed by Scott Litt. Um, Bob Weston was a technician during the recording of the record. Um, Bob Ludwig d- did some mastering. Um, Adam Casper was the assistant to Scott Litt. Scott Litt did the mixing on Heart Shape Box and All Apologies. For the live versions, that's where like Pat Smear shows up, shows up. and Laurie Goldston, who I believe was also the person who played cello during the MTV Live performance, as well. But they're not on the record. The record is just the three of them as their core group, and they recorded it pretty quick. They did it in like under two weeks, and they paid for it themselves because they what do didn't, you mean well. They didn't. They paid twenty four thousand dollars to make the record and they gave uh, Steve Albini a hundred thousand dollars and they paid for it themselves. So that they, that was their way of like not letting the studio have a say or not, or not having the labels have a say in it. Like they were basically saying, and that was
2: at, that was at the urging of uh, Albini too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He said, don't let the label pay for this. And then Mm -hmm. you can do what you want essentially. Which did- have you read the
2: letter? <laughs> have you read the letter, Tim?
0: No, I haven't. Can, do, can it's you fascinating. Just, can you sum it up?
2: You know, it's quite long-winded, but he does go into great detail about his work ethic, what he expects from the bands he works with. Um, he won't um, suffer fools gladly. He won't have any interference from record labels. Um, but it's very much a manifesto and. And he definitely got them on board, totally. And it's it's just fascinating to 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 listen to his um, his kind of um, yeah. I, I don't know how to explain it other than a manifesto. It's like this is how he works. Right. You have to work this way. We're gonna go up to Minnesota. It's a great studio. Uh, you know, you won't have any interference there. We can get this if you know if it's if it we can't get it done within a week, then something's you know going wrong essentially. So right, he's he's laid it all out very plainly, and they, they definitely seem to have been brought on board with that uh, with that letter. I would say, yeah,
0: and it seemed like from what I read, Cobain was a little nervous about working with him, not because of his talent, because he was a big fan of what. Uh, Steve Albini had done specifically with Surfer Rosa by the Pixies and Pod by the Breeders, but Mm -hmm. he was worried about personality clashes and they ended up having a great working relationship, worked through everything real quick. You know, for the most part, they did it all live. And then there were a couple songs where they recorded the drums first and then did the, you know, tracking on top of that. He did all of his vocals in six hours for the whole record which is pretty crazy for this level of recording to knock them out that fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, six hours is what you do for like the chorus of one song sometimes at this level. So to know that they knocked them out for the whole record is, is nuts. Um, and he, he did not allow anybody to like come to the studio other than, uh, Courtney love came to the studio briefly. But other than that, they were like locked away from all of the studio, all the like label management. And he said, Albini said he didn't listen to anything that they said like ahead of time, like how they wanted things to sound. They were like, he only listened to the band and exactly what the band wanted to
2: do. So we should say recording was very smooth until Courtney showed up. Yes. (laughs) Yep.
1: And to to refresh the my mind on the timeline and maybe those listening. So this comes out in September. Yeah. They start to tour in October. They record unplugged in November.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's dead by April. Yep. And then the following November unplugged is actually released. Yep. It's
0: wow. a Very short period of time.
1: Yeah. That it didn't seem like. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's a year. One full year, all those things happen. That's pretty. And amazing. they
0: recorded this in February of ninety three. But it was after they did the recording that Cobain sat with it for like a week and was not happy with the mix. And the primary issues were he thought his vocals were too low and muddy in the mix. and he thought that he just wanted like there to be a little bit more life overall in the in the mix of the album so that's when they brought in scott Litt to do the remixes on a couple songs um but the label i guess the label heard it the first time we were like this is not releasable and he was like well okay (laughs) whatever this is the album so i think once they got the remixes done on what they considered some of the singles that that sort of lighten the mood a little bit. I'm not sure. Well, let's get into some of the comments over at uh we'll, we'll sprinkle these in as we're talking as well. Frank Garcia Hell said, "In my top 5 albums of all time, so I'm very biased about this album. One of Albini's bests as well. I love Nevermind, but this album is on another level for me. The raw and bombastic nature of the album seems to fit more of what Nirvana was and wanted to be. The album sounds incredible on vinyl if you listen to it on a top-tier turntable and excellent headphones." Especially radio-friendly unit shifter, and then Whitney Biller says, "I know the mission statement says to dig up lost and forgotten rock, but every now and then it seems right to tackle something big like in utero. I mean, trying to get people to appreciate iSCUM's late '90s sophomore release, this or Sewer Salmons' 1990 debut, is the goal. I don't know if he. Okay, I made both those up. I was going to say I don't know if he made those up or not because they sound like they could have been advanced." <laughs>
1: those are pretty good Whitney
0: um, he said it's undoubtedly a worthy album I just got done listening to it and wow I still love Serve the Servants Sub- Satless Apprentice, Melkit, Radio Friendly Unit Shifter like I did back in my 20s yeah I'm old in fact the only song I don't care for care about is Heart Shaped Box Heresy interesting let's get into this let's talk about what works for us and what doesn't work for us on the 1993 album by the little band known as nirvana jay in revisiting this album tell me something you liked about it
1: uh well particularly for revisiting it the production i don't remember being as impressed with it at the time now i mean my tastes have changed and my ears have changed and i've learned a lot more um maybe it's the remaster probably helps it a little bit um but yeah it's it's a I think it's a great example of Steve, Steve Albini's work. Um, you know, it's the classic, you know, fairly dry room sound production that he does. I think the thing that now I'm able to understand what what is going on to make it sound big is um, I believe what they're using is a plate reverb or, or a reverb that's less of a room sound. It's more of like a doubling. So you get this, particularly with the drums, you know, this huge drum sound. Um, that essentially sounds like, you know, every snare hit sounds like two snare hits because of the re- type of reverb that mm-hmm. they're using. Now, if you've ever played in garage and try to use that reverb, you usually, yeah, I found myself at least turning it on and being like, Oh God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, you know, it, it takes skill to be able to, to use it well. And obviously, uh, they do on this record. So yeah, I mean, just overall sonically it, it's beefy, but, uh, um, Sounds clear, but not overproduced. Um, You get a lot of grittiness in the guitar tones. You know, the fuzzy guitar um, is really rich too. It's not just like a fuzz pedal. You get some like actual like depth and like you can tell it's a guitar um, sometimes, but then they can be, you know, they can go from on this record doing things that are a little bit cleaner and have cello and are kind of, almost pretty to just being a full on brutal. Um, and overall the pr- production is, you know, it, it expands to be able to accommodate all that pretty well, um, or very well. So, you know, for me, that was really what I've enjoyed most about revisiting, particularly like the the 20th anniversary super deluxe version where you kind of, you can hear the alternate mixes and really hear the demos and how they compare to like the final versions and really appreciate Mm -hmm. like the production of the record, like the act of making it sonically and as a statement.
0: Yeah. We can get into some of those bonus tracks and whatnot into some, in some bonus time for us later. But, um, I think one of the things I enjoyed going back to this record, because I don't think I spent a whole lot of time with it when it came out. I, I'm pretty sure I picked it up used, like I mentioned earlier. And then everything happened, and I just sort of put down Nirvana for a while. Like, I, it felt uncomfortable to listen to that. And I was really into Nevermind. I listened to that record a lot. And listening to this now was almost like re learning the record everything sounded familiar but what i really enjoyed was listening to the album tracks like serve the servants setless apprentice was just like hearing a completely new song I remember hearing that, but now recognizing like what a drummer, what a great drummer Dave Grohl is, or used to be because he doesn't play drums anymore for the most part. It gives me a totally new appreciation for what his contribution was to the band, and then also hearing the, some of the quieter tracks. Nirvana is known for you know louder or mid-tempo y songs uh, that are heavy. And hearing songs like Dumb and Penny Royalty and those songs it really gives you like an aspect to Cobain's songwriting. Like Dumb to me, you can hear where he almost has like a beatle tinge to his songwriting. And I always thought of him as just sort of aping, you know, the Pixies and Sonic Youth and those sorts of sort of obvious influences. And I didn't necessarily always hear the stuff that was, you know, in the canon of rock and roll history because he seemed like so pinned to the alternative music of the nineties. And it was cool to hear some stuff that was a bit broader in terms of its influence. So just, I think for me, the, the real interesting aspect of this was listening to the, the album tracks and hearing so much stuff that you know the the singles just got played to death on this record and they still do i mean i still hear heart-shaped box on 99.7 the blitz and you know alongside whatever the new five-finger death punch song is like it's crazy that these songs still get played yeah. every day and uh there's just there's no they don't wear out in terms of people listening to him on the radio so Johnny and I I don't know how long it's been since you've revisited this but um what uh, aspects of the record um now work best for you or or what's the stuff that uh, you gravitate towards
2: well in all honesty I've never stopped listening to this record I I I continually come back to it uh Nevermind is one that I take long breaks from uh, I find, never mind, far too slick production-wise, I find the the kind of the earworm hooks of, of that particular songwriting annoying after a while. So to come to In Utero time and again is just like an oasis for me. It's, it's a love letter to uh, Albini's production. Um, in the record, you can hear... Uh, I would say the anguish of, of Cobain and you can hear what happened to him basically the previous two years uh, and it's, it's all kind of spilling out through these 12 songs. Um, it's mostly abrasive which really appeals to me. Uh, I find the guitar tones uh, absolutely piercing and hitting the, all the right spots for me. The, the drums are absolutely bombastic. Um, this is like a perfect record for me. Like, there's just there's never I've never had any issues with this record, uh, for as long as I've been listening to it.
0: Yeah, the I, I just to jump back onto the drum stuff, uh, and and Sentless Apprentice, you know, hearing that just pummeling drum part, and the other aspect that I picked up with that song, which I don't think I remembered was Cobain is doing these really t- cool guitar parts where he's, like, sliding up the string and, and making these weird noises. And Jay, did you pick up on those um, in that song? Yep. It's, yeah. And that's not something that I think of him as, as a inventive sort of lead player in that way. You know, I think of him as writing really cool riffs based around, you know, chord riffs, and I think of him as writing some decent, you know, melodic solos, but they tend to be, he, I don't think of, he's not a, you know, he's not Steve Vai. I don't, I'm not looking for that from him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the solos that I think of are pretty, Yeah. you know, they're pretty basic, but they're, they're they are they're they're serve the songs. The song. Yeah. But that thing that he's doing in Scentless Apprentice is really cool. And I wonder if it's because that's the only song that I think of there. I think that I could find where he shares songwriting
2: credit. I think they
0: can I jump in on that,
2: Tim? Yeah. Uh, do you have the with the lights out a uh, box set? I don't know. On that, you will find a nine minute rehearsal recording of "Sentless Apprentice. And at the very beginning of it, you hear Grawl say, I wrote this song, and it goes like this. And he starts to play the, the riff. Uh, 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 uh. And so he shows, he's essentially showing the riff. And then he, it takes a minute or two for Cobain to, to kind of pick it up, allowing Grawl to get behind the drum kit again. And it takes another basically two minutes where they start to play that riff kind of repetitively. By about minute three or four, they've worked out, you know, that kind of breakdown part that you're talking about. And he starts to kind of uh, scream on top of it. And by, you know, the nine minute mark, that whole house is burned down. Like it is a fascinating document of a song coming together literally as you're hearing it. I absolutely urge you to rush out and listen to
1: that. Oh, I will. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, you know, as a drummer, that is one of the things that I, I always found remarkable about the record and always remembered about the record was that drum beat. Like it is a drum riff, like it is a memorable, even before the guitar parts come in, like a memorable drum riff that like most drummers, when they hear it, want to sit down and play it. And like, so it's, it's interesting to hear that.
2: It's in my head constantly yeah constantly well
0: it's funny because you can hear the lineage from that song to like my hero by the foo
1: fighters Mm. yeah i can hear that it's like a it's like a yeah very like primal version of
0: yeah it's the primal version of that song um so some more comments from our, our patreon page uh, Keith Badge says, Good thing this isn't, this ain't actually the 90s. Otherwise, I'd have to yell at you for selling out and find more indie underground podcasts for my extreme listening pleasure. Seriously, though, <laughs> we're the album, but one I can't see myself really revisiting. I'm 37 years old with an office job and a Subaru. I can't imagine the album, outside of maybe all apologies, having anything to say to me anymore. All in all, its lure is lost. Edit, I take it back streamed it at work it holds up except very ape and milk it interesting steve Musinski says to take an album as widely praised as this and put it under the microscope all these years later is undoubtedly an interesting exercise however not one i'd be very good at good not one i'd be very much good at least from a critical standpoint this one is just too near dear to hear to the heart for me love it from top to bottom but i'd happily listen to you guys attempt to do so um gary moran says classic ian wobble says start of the great teenage angst has paid off well now i'm bored and old maybe one of the greatest first lines of an album ever yeah chris smarts strangely enough i've been listening to this a lot recently while most people might scoff at dmo That's us covering a Nirvana record. I think this one fits because it always felt like the odd one out. I remember liking this one a lot more than nevermind when it came out. I still feel that way. I'm forever grateful for my parents for letting me go see them alone with my twin brother. When I was, when we were just 14. Wow. Patrick Tessa says five stars plus an underline and maybe an arrow pointing at the five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then uh, Dewey Cole says, like most guys my age, I had, a com- I had Cobain on my wall in 93 and bought this CD shortly after its release. Shout out to Nobody Beats the Wiz on Long Island. I remember being blown the fuck away by the sound on this and how different it was from Nevermind. I had heard Heart Shaped Box by that point, but some of these songs, like Sentless Apprentice, Melkit, Tourette's Radio Friendly, these songs were nothing like Nevermind and that they were still brilliant in their own right. Maybe it's LB that deserves the credit for this, most likely, but the drums sounded incredible. They jump out you and don't let go. Also a huge fan of the lit, remixed Penny Royal Tea. Might not be the popular choice, but it's mine. Essential B-Sides, Sappy, Marigold, and I Hate Myself and Wanna Die. Um, as far as the stuff that didn't work, I do agree that I feel like Very Ape and Melkit. It... Well, Very Ape to me sounds... Like, it could have been a Bleach song. Like, it doesn't... There's a progression in the songwriting on this record that that song doesn't have. Melk it somewhat, but... I feel like there's so much that's not uh, present in terms of the sophistication of Cobain and the band on this record that is not on the previous records. And, and the combined with the rawness, it really does something special. But there are a few tracks that I was like, ah, I agree, I don't need to hear that one again. Jay, was there anything that didn't work for you?
1: Yeah, I think it's in that same theme. Uh, you know, a song we vary, I would even say, Brave Me, like, are so stereotypical, like Nirvana, I'm using air quotes, Nirvana songs, like it, just in terms of that soft, that very crude, soft, loud dynamic, you know, kind of the chord bass riff thing. There, there's, there's some stuff like that on this record that I think is forgettable. I think Melk It for me, though, is not one of those because to me it sounds like them at their weirdest, like most angular, um, almost shellac-like. So hmm. I don't mind that. I hadn't
0: thought about that, but yeah, there is kind of a shellac sound to that song.
1: further like a little bit more aggressive and like right maybe yeah it's like uh if you're gonna go down that route of you know the kind of that brutal aggressive sound um you know i think that's an interesting place for them to have gone and to you know had he lived, live continue to go um even like radio-friendly unit shifter to me you know has a little bit of a fugazi kind of sound to it too like those songs, like one of those on the record or two of those is is cool. To me, it it shows them, you know, their most releasing the energy, like aggressive, primal, but mm-hmm. still interesting. And then you've got the stuff to me that, you know, like Penny Royalty and all apologies, like from a production and songwriting standpoint, and I'll say serve the servants, like are so much better than a lot of the material on this. I mean, just from a songwriting standpoint alone, yeah. they're just so much more sophisticated um and melodic you know i think i'm not a huge fan of like his courses that are droney like he'll just say the same thing over and over again like musically there might be a lot going on or some melody there but you know the songs where he gets into that kind of nasally drone thing for a chorus I, i'm usually disappointed um so yeah i mean i, I tend to be driven uh, drawn to the stuff that's you know next level either if you're going to be aggressive like do it in a way that's you know more angular and weird and if you're going to be writing pop songs like you know dig in do a little bit of production I mean you don't have to get crazy but just like make it sonically an interesting listen on a record you know which I think Penny Royalty the production of that is great I think the production on All Apologies is amazing Um, I think the songwriting of Serve the Servants is amazing. You know, to me, those are the ones that really stand out. Um, dumb to me is kind of the, it's almost like the unplugged format that they end up using, um, later, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. foreshadows that kind of approach. Um, so I enjoy that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, there's some missteps or at least some parts of this record that are forgettable. Uh, for me
0: johnny i know you have praised this without reservation but is there anything that are any songs that maybe don't make it into the regular rotation that you might hit the skip button on the cd player every once in a
2: while i mean for, you know i'm so biased on this record because it just means so much to me if if anything i, I just bypass all apologies because you know how many times can you hear it but honestly, uh, song in, song out, I'm just 100% on board all the time. And uh, I love live versions. I love unbugged versions. I love uh, Albini remixed 2013 versions. I- I'm just goo uh, you know, I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs up for this.
1: One. <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear that enough anymore. Yeah.
2: I do agree with
0: you that I have zero interest in going back and listening to Nevermind. Never because that is so overplayed as an overall record, I might go listen to an album track, but the production is so much slicker and it makes it a lot less interesting. And listening to this, listening to the just the the raw thumping drums and the bass lines and and, and his really vocals. gnarly guitars and and his vocals are really raw. And he breaks a lot, which is cool. It, it just gives this a human element to this record that is a little bit lacking. And I think that's why I've always liked Bleach a lot, too, because Bleach sounds so raw and untamed. And, and in a weird way, this sounds like the progression between... It like, sounds like it should have been the, the second album after Bleach, and then the third album should have been Nevermind, where they actually perfected the production whereas in some people's mind they might have taken a step back with the production on this record because it's more raw because it's more immediate but it's them purposely going in that direction which then makes me think well what would they have done next you know that's that what if what would have happened you know in 95 or 96 if they had put out another record would they have continued this sort of de-evolution of the sound? Would the unplugged have made an influence? Would we had acoustic songs? You know, a whole David Bowie tribute album. What would have been? What would have been the? <laughs> what we what we have heard there. So it's interesting because it's it doesn't sound like what you would expect, but it sounds like what they needed to do to maintain their sanity that was such a crazy time i mean I, you know looking back at this there was like a an article at Newsweek that the band had to like write a letter that and have it published to refute accusations made in newsweek like but they were in a battle with newsweek how that's like something that <laughs> axel rose would do and that's just crazy so that was that was the what was going on with them so i would imagine that just trying to make a really honest and a record that reflected what they wanted to do was hard in terms of all the people that they had to please at that time based on you know being the saviors of rock music in the 90s so
1: expectations man
0: yeah it's nuts it's nuts and i think in a weird way and, it, and people have talked about it in some of the comments this record kind of gets overlooked even though it has a bunch of huge singles on it i i you know whenever there's lists of the you know 100 albums of the 90s it's always never mind that's up there and i understand that because that's got smells like teen spirit and that's sort of the anthem for the decade but i don't know that that album is worth on a whole the revisit that this record is from a longevity standpoint.
2: Wouldn't you love to have heard uh, a nevermind produced by Albini?
0: Yeah, that would be interesting because he did not have kind words about the band before working with them.
2: No, he was not a fan. He he, he appreciated the fact that they traveled in the same circles. They had basically the same friends uh, but, you know, to listen to Albini tell it, 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 he really grew to appreciate Nirvana once he started to um, watch and listen Grawl play drums. When it was when he was able to see that kind of for himself, he really started to have a deeper appreciation of their music and he understood kind of where it was coming from.
0: He called, before he started working with them and, and knew them, he called them um, R.E.M. with a fuzz box. Yeah which is funny cuz REM wouldn't have a fuzz box not long after. <laughs> uh as as I'm reminded by the 20th anniversary or sorry. Yeah, 23rd, is it tw- no, not 20, 25th anniversary maybe of uh Monster. Is that what's
2: just happened? It does.
0: I think so. Uh so there was a poll on Patreon and people voted we the album, better EP, and decent single, and that's what we're gonna do right now. I think I know where this is going, but the poll ended up. We got a lot of votes to this poll. Eighty-six percent of the twenty-one votes went to where the album. Ten percent went to better EP, and someone voted
1: for decent single. Someone. <laughs> And Johnny wants to know your name. I'm going to hunt
2: you down, you best. <laughs> Whoever you are, you're getting kicked out of the YouTube.
1: Who voted for Decent Single?
0: I'm not telling you. I can't tell you. I, we have a confidence here. Uh, we, don't expo- we don't expose who they are. Uh, but I'm going to say that I am, I am shocked. And this person is going to get an angry worded letter from me. So as far as the Worthy Album, Better EP, Decent Single, I'm at a Worthy Album. I think that that's... I might swap out... We could talk about this in some bonus chatter, but I might swap out one or two songs with the B-sides. However, I think the overall the album is incredibly strong and is worthy of being considered on par with Nevermind in terms of its overall quality and in some respects is a better record than that record. J where the album better EP decent yes. single.
1: Well, I'm of the mind I was of the mind going into this that Nirvana is pretty overrated. I you know I'm in a minority here, but I just I can't help but think that, you know, his dealt to you know, a you know, uh, I don't know, uh, more than maybe what the band was. I felt listening to this record that I got it a little bit more. I still think they're overrated, um, but I still, but I do think that this, of all the Nirvana records, this would be the one I would probably go back to the most. So I'm I'm at an EP. I've got six songs that I like a lot. You know the singles, uh, "Milk It," "Dumb," and "Serve the Servants." Um, so six to twelve. And I think that's, you know, those would be the ones that if I revisit the record, what I would want to listen to, um, I think are the strongest. Uh, And the other stuff, Scentless Apprentice, I love the drum riff, but as a song, it's not, it gets boring after about a minute. Um, You kind of like hear the riff and get it, but not a whole lot happens after that. Um, And then I think all the other stuff uh, that I didn't mention is like middle of the road, either noisy experiments or i don't know just stereotypical like grunge songs and i know at the time they probably you know they were more exciting than they are now but in hindsight they just um don't hold up as well as the six i called out
0: interesting i'll say i don't there's rarely a time i put on nirvana i just i have no drive to listen to it because i'm feel like i know it so well inside and out at least yeah. all the singles yeah, I mean it's the same thing with like Pearl Jam. I I really like Pearl Jam, but I have I never put on Pearl Jam. Like if it comes on the radio or something, I'll just leave it on because I'm not offended by it. Same thing with Nirvana. But I I just know the song so well that if I'm listening, if I'm going to go listen to something, it's not going to be that because I've listened to it.
1: Well, and, and I, I think uh, I know the. I think I know the um, unplugged versions of some of these more than I know these versions. So part of revisiting it and maybe why I would go back to it would be to hear these versions of the songs, which I think are, I don't know if they're better or not, but they're certainly different and have their own merits.
0: Right. Johnny, it's a worthy album,
2: right? It's a worthy album. Uh, After listening to Jay Speak, I just had to clean up the vomit that I (laughs) myself. But uh, yeah, no, for me, it's a worthy album. But you know, it's got abrasive qualities that I think were were meant to throw people off. You know, I think they were out to lose fans purposely, in the same way that Pearl Jam did with Vitology. Yeah, but you know, even then, like that, I feel like that effort was half-hearted from from them. I, I feel this is this is a more divisive record. Uh, there's more on the line. Um, I just it feels like a different kettle of fish for me. But I, I just think, given all the circumstances, um, the previous two years that probably no one has undergone. Uh, before or since oh yeah uh, yeah, that he lived through and he's uh, a strung out you know basically a junkie at this point um dealing with some sort of manic bipolar type condition manic depressive what have you i I just think this is a remarkable story and an unbelievable record from one of the great artists of you know the early 90s
0: So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes and do some Patreon bonus and talk about a couple of the bonus tracks that maybe each of us want to talk about, uh, stuff that's interesting to us. So if you're interested, join us over to Patreon and you can hear some bonus content. Thank you, Mr. Hooper, for bringing this. This was a fun revisit to get to talk to about one uh, one of the pillars of the 90s in terms of bands, but maybe one of the overlooked albums of those
2: pillars which is unbelievable to say i mean it is, it's kind of it unbelievable
0: to say that it is well like i said you know when you look at those rolling stone lists and those you know those all, all important rolling stone top 500 albums of whatever it's it's always never mind that's on there so we're glad to give in utero a, a little push in that direction because it's definitely an interesting record. and It combines so many different aspects of the 90s that are interesting with regards to Albini's production and, and Nirvana and all that. So, fun revisit. And um, we need to thank all of our commenters over at Patreon. You can join us over at Patreon. DMOunion.com or DigMeOutUnion.com is where you go to join the union. And if you like what you heard, consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
1: Thanks for
2: listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Dig Me Out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.